Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 29, verses 12 to 35. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simon, Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, there's a lot of things that divide us uh, culturally, uh, a lot of different things that are very different amongst many different cultures. Uh, But one thing that tends to be very unifying about a lot of different cultures uh, is many cultures love for soap operas. 
whether we're talking about telenovelas or K-dramas or Indian serials, uh, people love them. Uh, and the reason why people love soap operas is because they are stories with plot twists and deceptions and illicit relationships and drama. Uh, I can honestly say I've never actually watched a soap opera, uh, but when I read this story that we just heard read, it feels a lot like a soap opera, doesn't it? Uh, there's probably no better narrative to point to that, uh, that gives us a picture of what a modern-day soap opera looks like than the story of Jacob, the younger son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. And of course, uh, what we're seeing here is, is uh, quite different than the contrived drama that we uh, enjoy on TV, but rather, it's a very real, very heartbreaking, very uh, angering, and yet captivating story. I mean, if we see this story rightly, it's actually incredibly moving, because through this story that we just heard read, we actually see a promise-keeping God working in the midst of liars and deceivers. We see a, a compassionate God working in the midst of the brokenhearted. We see a generous God working in the midst of those longing for fulfillment. We see a faithful God working in and through the unfaithful. Now today, we'll be continuing on in our series called In the Beginning. Uh, we've been looking at the narrative of Genesis, and we're going to continue by looking at Jacob, and in particular, uh, the story of his line, a line, of course, that uh, was started by and promised to his grandfather, Abraham. This now is the next chapter in that story. Uh, and while Jacob's story uh, has spans, you know, multiple chapters of Genesis, this section uh, focuses on Jacob, Laban, Rachel, and Leah, and really summarizes a lot of Jacob's life one of plot twists and deceptions and illicit relationships and drama. And through this ancient story, we actually have opportunity to have insights, not into just what was taking place back then, but actually into our own experiences, particularly our experiences of seeking fulfillment in life. If we have eyes to see, this story of longing for fulfillment is very much our story of longing for fulfillment. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at several sub-stories that we see throughout this narrative. I want to see that it's a story of deception and greed, that it's a story of longing, and that it's also a story of fulfillment. Right? Let's look at those first. Uh, it's a story of deception and greed. Uh, so first, we need to, kind of get, again, get a full picture of what's going on, the, the narrative that's taking place here, the characters in the story. Uh, as we enter chapter 29, Jacob, again, who is the uh, youngest son of Isaac, has deceived his brother, uh, out, uh, which was the oldest son of his father, Isaac, uh, deceived him, and as a result, received for himself uh, the birthright blessing and the inheritance that we'd expect to have gone to Esau. As we've said a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, we'd expect God to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would have been what we'd expect, but through the deception that we considered last week, Jacob usurps his brother's birthright and receives the family blessing. And also, as a reminder, interestingly, Jacob's name literally meant to follow or to be behind. Eventually, his name would become synonymous with the ideas of supplanting or to be one who deceives. In other words, almost from birth, Jacob's identity has been rooted in deception, in kind of tailing along, trying to make something of himself. Last week, we saw 
that because of his deceptions, though, Esau, his older brother, wants him dead. Esau's furious and wants to kill Jacob, and so Jacob, he flees. And he ends up in the home of his uncle, Laban, which is where our story picks up here. And it's here in our passage where we begin to get full context of what's going to now take place in this next chapter of Jacob's life in the house of Laban. Now, we need to take a look at Laban for a second because he's another very interesting character. Uh, We first meet Laban uh, back in chapter 24. Uh, And what we can gather from him back in 24 uh, is that he's a man who tends to be pretty focused on wealth and doing whatever is necessary to position himself as the one who would end up gaining wealth. And we see clues of that back in chapter 24, but we also see that a bit here, which we'll speak to in a moment. But what we're seeing is that the author here uh, gives us a glimpse into the, the greed of Laban and his willingness to use other people to get what it is that he wants, to get what benefits him. And it's fascinating that Jacob, the deceiver, has now entered the home of Laban, the greedy. I'm sure things are going to go lovely as a result of these two meeting. Now, this deception and greed of these two men will impact no one more in this entire narrative than the other two characters that we see in this story, Leah, who is the oldest daughter of Laban, and Rachel, who's the youngest. And here's what we know about them. We don't know a whole lot, but we do know enough. Verse 16 of our passage says this, It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Verse 17, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, just quickly, when it says that Leah had weak eyes, it's not referring to her actual sight, but rather her attractiveness. In other words, Rachel was beautiful and desired, and Leah was not. And as a result, Jacob sees Rachel falls madly in love with her, and desires to marry her. Now, in these times, a price would have been paid to the family for the right to marry a daughter. And so a price is presented. Jacob offers himself uh, free labor, as free labor for the, uh, to Laban for the next seven years for the right to marry Rachel, this woman he's now in love with. Now, this would have been a huge price to pay for Rachel's hand, uh, particularly for that time. Seven years would have accumulated or would have uh, resulted in a whole lot of a price. Labor's response, which I actually find really interesting, considering how much Jacob is about to pay to marry Rachel, Laban's response is uh, found in verse 19, where he basically just says, eh, okay, better you than someone else. It's a fascinating response. And as a result, Jacob then works for Laban for seven years After those seven years are up, I'm fast-forwarding, of course, very quickly through this narrative. After seven years, Jacob is now ready to take Rachel, and this is what he says in verse 21. It says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to make love with her, or to her. Now, that translation is cleaned up a little bit because translators have actually struggled to know how to uh, translate this portion of Scripture because what Jacob is actually saying is, extremely abrasive and coarse. I mean, you can read it and kind of feel how crude that feels. But what he's saying is, listen, I've done my time. Give me your daughter. I want to have sex with her now. And this would have been just as off-putting then as it is now for us to hear. But in response, Laban says, okay. And he plans and gathers people for a wedding and a feast. 
Now, this, this feast would have been a ceremony where the bride would have been veiled uh, and the wine would have been flowing. And so with that in mind, the following events, I think, would then make sense that when the time came for this couple to consummate their marriage, look at verse 23. It says, but when evening came, he took his daughter, uh, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought Leah to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And then it would not be until morning that Jacob realizes what happened. Of course, he had been deceived. He had been tricked. He thought he was marrying Rachel. Now he was tricked into marrying, having married Leah. And of course, as you could imagine, he's very upset. And in verse 25, it says this, that when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replies, this. This is what Laban says. It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage. Now, it's interesting here that Laban says it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage uh, before the older one. And then he pivots and he says, finish this daughter, right? Leah's bridal week. And then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And this is what I find fascinating. Verse 28. And Jacob did so. What? Why would he do that? Why would Jacob just go along with the plan? He just worked seven years. Now he's being told he needs to work an additional seven years for Rachel, who he just worked for. He was just tricked into marrying Leah. Why does he agree with this? Why is he not livid? Why is he not resisting? Well, it's because of what Laban said in verse 26. When Laban said, it is not our custom here, to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older. Do you see what Laban's doing there? He's confronting Jacob with his own previous deceptions. Right, you can almost hear this conversation like a, a mob boss narration. Right, Jacob, Jacob comes, he's indignant. And Laban says, uh, around here, the younger doesn't supplant the older. And now what you have is Jacob confronted by his own deceptions, and he immediately backs down. And he goes along with Laban's plan to take Rachel as his wife. And Laban gets another seven years of free labor out of Jacob. The deceiver was just deceived by the greedy man who now gets more. Now, all that context in mind, this might actually sound strange given our cultural distance to everything going on in this story. But some of us here, we might not want to admit it, but we actually are, at times, probably more like Jacob and Laban than we want to admit. We are willing, too often, to use and deceive people to get what we want. Maybe to not this extent, but maybe we are willing to, at times, manipulate people in order to get what we want. You know, we are rather unconcerned at times of how our choices and our obsessions impact those around us. I mean, Rachel and Leah have really just become pawns in this battle back and forth between Jacob and uh, Laban. Other people too often can just become a means to an end. That end maybe being economic gain like Laban or pleasure or relational satisfaction like Jacob. I mean, too often we are more like Jacob and Laban than we want to admit because we too, much like them, we are longing for something to be fulfilled within us. 
And that's why we need to not just see the story as simply uh, uh, an unfortunate story of greed and deception. We also need to see it as a story of longing. What is that longing taking place? Well, to look at, at longing, I want to take our attention off of Jacob and Laban, and I want to turn our attention to Rachel and Leah. Because, again, these two people are the most impacted by the deceptions and the greed of two men who ought to be looking out for their good, who ultimately just were looking out for their own. The experience of Rachel and Leah dealing with the deceptions and greed of their father and husband is absolutely heart-wrenching. Before I look at their experience, though, I do want to point out something that I would imagine is probably on most of our minds, specifically that this whole story just kind of leaves you feeling gross. The rejection of Leah because she's not beautiful, the pursuit of and favor of Rachel because she was beautiful, that all feels just wrong, kind of gross. The the polygamy that serves the desires of of men and leaves women feeling less than just kind of makes you feel gross. It feels archaic. It feels dehumanizing. And I want to just say, if you feel that way about the story, that is actually exactly how you're supposed to feel about the story. I mean, some presume that when the Bible tells stories uh, like this that seem to affirm the notions of polygamy or sexual uh, perverseness or superficiality, Uh, Some would assume that that's what the Bible thinks to be good, right, and true. But if that's your perception, it's actually a wrong understanding of what the Bible is showing us. There's a well-known Bible scholar, and and many have drawn from him in the past, named Robert Alter. He's a Hebrew scholar who, uh, working through narratives like this, uh, and the assumption that the Bible is uh, affirming such things, he says that if you're reading the stories— and you're thinking that this is what the Bible desires for us, you're missing the entire point of the narrative. Because wherever this occurs, the narrative shows how it absolutely wreaks havoc on everyone that's around them. The Bible is telling us what happened, not necessarily what should happen, and those are two very, very different things. Stories like this show us the disaster that comes when we do not live as God intends. And in this case, God would intend faithful monogamy that dignifies both individuals in a relationship, not materializing them. That would be God's intent. But because that's been undermined, we see this family in complete shambles. It's telling us what happened, not what should happen. Plus, let me also just say, you know, as as enlightened as we think we are in these modern days, we have not progressed past anything that we've just read in this story. Sure, today it might look a little bit different, but if we think that we've progressed beyond the reality, for example, that a person's beauty, and especially the beauty of women, doesn't change their life outcome, we're sorely mistaken. Because there is a fashion industry and a makeup industry and a plastic surgery industry that exists because we have not progressed past the superficiality of subjective definitions of beauty that then impacts an individual's outcome, and yes, it tends to impact women more than men. If we think that we've progressed past our willingness to use other people for our personal pleasure or gratification, again, you're sorely mistaken because there is a pornography industry and a hookup culture that proves the extent to which we have not progressed using other people as objects of pleasure, not image bearers of God. If we think that we've moved past exploiting others for the sake of profit, I hate to break it to you, 
But the capitalism of the West that we exist in is so often dependent on the exploitative labor practices around the world, practices that we benefit from. So while we might read this story with all this cultural distance and judgment, just know, lest we assume we are enlightened, human nature has not changed. We just repackage these same issues into new forms. That said, that was all a side note. Free of charge, you're welcome. That said, just like in modern days, the impact of this deception and greed and selfishness deeply impacts Rachel and Leah. Leah now knows the extent to which she is not loved, not seen, not appreciated by her husband. And for her, the only way that she thinks that she'll be able to find some sense of purpose and maybe love from her husband, who desires her sister, is if she can give Jacob children. And in verses 31 through 35, we see Rachel's plight, or I'm sorry, Leah's plight. And as we keep that plight in mind, your heart just breaks for this woman. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Let me just pause there for a second. As a result of having this son, do you think we see that Jacob now loves her? No. And the reason why we know is because now verse 33 says that she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave this one to, uh, he gave this one to, she named him Simeon. Now, she's got multiple sons. Do you think Jacob now loves her? No, because verse 34 now goes on and says, again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. So now do we think, after three sons, Jacob now loves her? No. Because what happens in verse 35? She conceives again. I mean, over and over and over, she's desperately longed for the approval and acceptance and praise of her husband and thought that she could get it and receive it by giving him sons. But alas, son after son after son, nothing came. You can imagine her misery and her pain. But Rachel is the other person in this story. She's not the only, or Leah's not the only one with longing and validation. Rachel, her story is also just as heartbreaking. We quickly moved past this, but if you look again at verse 31, verse 31 says that when the, lost, the Lord saw that Rachel was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. And if we continue reading into chapter 30, we see how this plays out. If you guys want to throw that up there, it says this, that when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children. She began, or she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave her servant Bilhah to, as a wife, Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him sons. Do you hear the desperation that Jake, or Rachel is also experiencing? Rachel is desperate to be validated as well. And what I find fascinating about her story is that she's lived her whole life as the one with attention. 
But now, unable to give her husband what is expected of her, she finds herself desperate. And as was likely the case, and is, all, uh, is the case for all of us, for her and now, the thing that made her most popular, her beauty, whatever beauty she might have possessed in her youth, over the course of time, it slowly fades. And then what? Right? If, our, if our validation is rooted in something like beauty, beauty that will fade, when it begins to fade, it's inevitable that we're going to start to spiral because the one thing that gave us value we no longer have, and what we're seeing here is Rachel's spiral. How? Well, sin and further sexual exploitation of her servant now becomes the means by which she hopes to be able to reclaim some sense of validation. That, to me, is definitely a spiral. Over and over again, we see in this story people longing for something, something that just seems to constantly be out of their reach. And I want to suggest that this story, as I've been saying, this story of Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and Laban is far more than just their story. This story of longing is very much our story that we might not want to recognize or we might not want to admit. But everyone is in this story. All of us. We are all in various ways unfulfilled, searching for the fulfillment in places that are going to inevitably leave us empty. And my friends, every one of us in some way, shape, or form is longing for something and attempting to fill it with something that will ultimately leave us empty. Maybe you're like Jacob and you're searching for prominence and power and control in your life, a great name for yourself. Maybe you're like Laban wanting riches and material possessions and business successes. Maybe you're like Leah wanting love and approval and acceptance. Maybe you're like Rachel wanting to replace what was lost or wanting to keep up with the success of others, wondering why they seem so blessed, but you're not. And maybe as a result of whatever it is that you're longing for, you're even willing to fall into sin in order to achieve and experience the perceived fulfillment of that longing. We all have ways that we are seeking to be fulfilled. And so my question would be, what are they? I mean, name them. Because as we name them, in doing so, we can begin to confront the ways that they will never satisfy gaining control of your life, making a great name for ourselves, accumulating wealth and stability, desiring affection from others, experiencing physical pleasure, possessing a thriving family, being attractive or maintaining attractive. None of attractiveness, none of it is going to satisfy. They are all vain pursuits in and of themselves. And this is why not only do we need to see this story as a story of longing, but now we need to begin fixing our gaze, not on these empty pursuits, but instead looking upon that which will actually produce for us what we're seeking, that joy-filled fulfillment. So I want to finally look at how this is also a story of fulfillment. Uh, if you remember, uh, Leah is, of course, desperate for the approval and acceptance of her husband, and she is convinced okay, that if she can give him a son, she will finally be loved by him. But time and time again, again, she bears sons to find a coldness remains, thus leaving her broken. But I want to look again at verse 35. 
when she bears the final son in this part of the narrative. It's fascinating how this ends. It's a fascinating part to the end of the narrative. Leah, uh, after she conceived for this final time, she had something change in her. Because this whole time, she wanted nothing more than the praise and approval of her husband. But then she came to the end of her rope, realizing the longing that she had would never be fulfilled or satisfied by Jacob. And as a result of that change, we see what happens in verse 35. It says this, that she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, this time, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Do you see the major difference between what she says here and what she's said previously? This time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah. That name Judah literally means praise. In other words, she realizes that the very thing that she's longed for, the affection, acceptance, and validation, the fulfilling joy of being loved, could not be and would not be filled by Jacob. Rather, all that love, that fulfilling, that validation could only come from the Lord. And you know what the consequence of that was? After she had this change, look at how verse 35 concludes, then she stopped having children. As a result of remembering that love, she laid down all of this striving. Now, I will say, if you continue to read on into the passage, like all of us, she has moments of up and down. Right now, she's understanding that her, her striving needs to be laid down, and she needs to trust in the Lord. Because the Bible is so real, just keep on reading. She'll find all kinds of new ways to engage this need to strive again. But the bottom line is here, for this moment, she recognizes that what she sought in Jacob could only be found in God. And the power of this redemptive moment is instructive. Because the rest that she finds was because her eyes were fixed on something beyond herself and her vain pursuits. The power of this redemptive moment is instructive because of what actually drove Leah's mindset change, but also the reality that her son, this son, this son whose name is praise, who caused her to lay down that striving, that son points us all toward something far beyond just him. I mean, remember, the ultimate promise that we've been looking at over and over again is that this line would be a line that would bless the nations. And now Leah has many sons, and these sons become the heads of the, the tribes of Israel, God's people. But what's fascinating is that the son named Praise, the son named Judah, the son who led Leah to say, this time I will praise the Lord, is the one through whom the promise of blessing would actually come, a blessing that would uh, bless the nations and bring a power of redemption for all of us. If you read the genealogies of, of Matthew and Luke, and if you read in Hebrews 7, what you see is that the one who comes from the line, this, this one who was to bless the nations, comes from this line, this tribe of Judah. If you read in Revelation 5, you see that this person who comes from this line is called the Lion of Judah. Jesus Christ is the one who comes from Leah's son, Jacob the one whose name is praised. Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lion of Judah, but who is also, according to Revelation 5, is the Lamb who was slain, who receives all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and power and blessing. This whole story 
is driving us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment, the one who leads us to praise. When we see Jesus as our fulfillment, we are able to lay down, like Leah did, lay down our strivings at the foot of the cross because on the cross, Jesus proves the extent to which he loves us, the extent to which he's willing to lay down his life for us. It is there that we realize we no longer need to strive. And to the Jacobs here in the room, know that Jesus reminds us that it's his name that is great, his name that is above every name, and that name is upon us. Therefore, you do not need to pursue your own great name for fulfillment. Trust in his name who's upon you. To the Labans that are in the room, Jesus is our great and eternal treasure. Therefore, you don't need to accumulate your own temporary wealth for fulfillment. Look upon the treasure of heaven. To the Leahs who are in the room, Jesus is our loving and faithful bridegroom. Therefore, you don't have to chase after the affection of others for fulfillment. Rest in his love for you. To the Rachels who are in the room, Jesus is the one who has fearfully and wonderfully made you and who has bestowed upon you a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Therefore, you don't have to distress over what might be lost but rather find your fulfillment in his commitment to you. See, this story, it says many things, but above all, it says that God in Christ is committed to us. He is committed to us, and he is the one who will fulfill all those longings that we have. That he's the one who turns those longings into praise, a praise that leads us to lay down all of that striving, and instead to rest in our Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. Maybe by the power of God's Spirit, may he make that so in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the commitment and love that you have for us. A commitment that, uh, as a result, brought to us your one and only son, Jesus, the one who fulfills the longings and desires that we possess. He is the one who points us not to the strivings of this world, but points us to the satisfaction that only comes when we lay down those strivings. And he has proven his love and commitment to us on the cross. And he's given us hope as a result of his resurrection. And so for those of us here, for the Jacobs and the Labans and the Leahs and the Rachels, would you fix our eyes not on the temporal things that will not satisfy, but on the eternal one who satisfies all things. Help us to rest, lay down our striving. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.